millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. In the 1960s, as the Cold War raged, members of the top-secret security panel sought to eliminate security threats to Canada's government, police, and military. While their main focus was on people considered to have communist sympathies, a secondary focus was on gay and lesbian men and women. You see, in the eyes of the security panel, homosexuality, as they saw it, was a weak link in the chain protecting Canada from Soviet espionage. Particularly focused on gay men, the security panel led a campaign of persecution against those confirmed as being gay and even those suspected of it. This campaign hit its zenith when funding was directed towards the development of a scientific testing method to identify a person's sexual orientation. The body of tests developed to carry out this task were given an unusual and defamatory nickname. This is Season 6, Episode 17, The Fruit Machine. Today's book recommendation is one written by Gary Kinsman. It is called The Canadian War on Queers, National Security as Sexual Regulation. This was published by UBC Press in 2010. Gary Kinsman is one of Canada's preeminent academics, studying and writing on the history and struggles of the LGBTQ community in this country, and this book is one of his finest. So let's go back to Canada in September 1945. An obscure Soviet cipher clerk named Igor Guzenko defected to Canada three days after the Second World War ended. He brought with him evidence of a widespread Soviet spy ring that had penetrated deep into Canada and the United States. The revelations of Guzenko's defection 
very much triggered anxiety and fear throughout Canada about the possible continued presence of Soviet agents and the potential for future Soviet espionage. By the end of the 1940s, the Cold War was raging, and for many Canadians, there was even more heightened anxiety that Soviet spies had in fact penetrated the deepest layers of Canadian society. In the United States, it began the era of McCarthyism, where Americans were being pressured and threatened to turn on their friends and colleagues on even the slightest pretext of potential communist sympathies. There was a very real belief throughout North America that the West was in an existential, ideological war for the souls of the world, and that the Soviet Union was seeking to expand communism globally. Finally, it was felt that America and her allies, NATO, for instance, was formed in 1949, were the only ones able and willing to stop its spread. While in Canada, the anti-communist campaigns were not as aggressive or widespread as in the U.S., anxiety over Soviet espionage was still very palpable, and there was pressure on Canadian officials by American officials to enhance their security procedures and protocols. So what was the status of gay and lesbian people in Canada in the 1950s? Well, homosexuality, as the state deemed it, was a crime in the eyes of the Canadian state. Crimes like gross indecency and buggery and even sentencing procedures labeled criminal sexual psychopath were all different ways the state attempted to regulate gay activity. In 1961, the Canadian state passed the Dangerous Sexual Offender Legislation, which lumped homosexuality in with pedophilia and predatory behavior towards children. Gay people were not just deemed criminals, however. They were also painted as deviants, and threats to Canadian youth. The bottom line was gay people were constructed by the state as a criminal sexual danger to the entire nation. It's no surprise then that gay and lesbians were prohibited from entering into the RCMP or the military, where heterosexuality was identified as a key trait for soldiers and police officers and men and women suspected of being gay often encountered barriers in hiring or promotion within the civil service as well as non-government bodies. So what we're talking about here is the collision of strong anxieties over Soviet spying coupled with a state, a nation, and a people that viewed being gay as a crime and a threat to all Canadians. Because the United States was so far ahead in its security campaign to identify and remove potential threats, it placed fairly extensive pressure on Canada to enhance its own security practices to effectively catch up. Particularly through NATO, U.S. officials conveyed their feelings 
Canadians that Canada was not doing enough to identify potential threats. Specifically, American officials and many Canadian officials saw the gay community as a security weakness. Men and women who could be effectively blackmailed by Soviet spies for their sexuality or their sexual behavior and thus forced to turn over government secrets. Now, as early as 1946, the Canadian government under Prime Minister Mackenzie King authorized the creation of the Security Panel, a secret committee of top civil servants, including representatives from the Privy Council, the RCMP, External Affairs, and National Defense Headquarters. By the late 1940s, this body had wide-ranging investigative powers, with the RCMP members of the panel being specifically responsible for the investigatory actions of the panel as a whole. The panel also had the ability to recommend policy in regards to security issues. One of the recommendations was that civil servants that were thought to be gay were quietly moved to posts or positions deemed less sensitive, i.e. dealing with less sensitive government material. By 1952, this policy was changed to a more aggressive and public one of firing civil servants thought to be gay or confirmed to be gay. This then led to hundreds losing their jobs and a very real climate of fear for those desperately holding on to the jobs they still had. Because of the secret nature of the security panel, there was no method for appeal or independent review. The decision of the panel was final. As an example, in 1962, the RCMP identified 850 people in the civil service suspected or proven of being gay. Anybody suspected was questioned by the RCMP who sought to ascertain proof of their sexuality through admission or other means. If admission was made, they then leaned on that person to identify others. This was basically a form of McCarthyism towards the Canadian gay community. Now, these efforts were not just directed towards high security areas like external affairs or the Department of National Defense, but they were also directed at places like the Central Mortgage and Housing Corporation, the Unemployment Insurance Commission, and other government bodies that were not deemed high security areas. However, there was a widely held belief that external affairs in particular was what one militant anti-communist stated, and I quote, a notorious cesspool of homosexuals and perverts. Folks, before I continue, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will, of course, see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate like five bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to do that. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, 
on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. You can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And thank you to the hundreds of people that have left ratings and most of you who have left five stars. We truly, truly appreciate it and your feedback. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Generally speaking, the security panel focused on men, as at the time in Canada, most senior positions and highly sensitive roles were occupied by men. For instance, David Johnson was the Canadian ambassador to Moscow, but was forced to resign in 1960 after an investigation forced him to admit he was gay. The thought process for the panel was that being gay was not just a criminal offense in Canada, but actually indicated a general character flaw or weakness, a sort of sexual biological view of homosexuality. The erroneous belief was that gay people were biologically and psychologically more apt to be blackmailed or to be convinced to divulge secrets to Soviet spies. What's really interesting, though, is the more that being gay was both criminally and socially unacceptable, the more Soviet spies could indeed exploit the fear of being found out to their advantage. One historian has identified this process as putting people deeper into the closet. The state was, in fact, through their regulations and security campaigns, actually compounding their own security issues. In a 1959 report, the secretary of the security panel, D.F. Wall, wrote that, and I quote, Homosexuality was the most frequently used character weakness and was the major route used by Soviet intelligence. End quote. He wrote this with no real evidence. In fact, he simply borrowed this from similar reports stating the same thing in both the United States and the United Kingdom. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, there was some debate on the security panel as to the general appropriate course of action if someone was confirmed to be gay. Many of the civil servants on the security panel wanted the resolution to be less criminally based and simply rooted in a quiet transfer or forced resignation. They still agreed that being gay was a deviancy and a character weakness which threatened national security, but they did not want discoveries to be made public. The RCMP, however, viewed being gay as a criminal issue and thus sought a resolution along criminal lines which would inevitably become more public. In fact, 
the RCMP even created a unit known as A3, whose task it was to hunt down and purge gay people both within the police force and also within government. The RCMP also advocated for widening the security campaign, not just to people in sensitive positions, but anybody working for the government at all. In the views of the RCMP, being gay was a crime, and a criminal should not be working for the government of Canada at all. The major challenge for the RCMP, however, was how to tell if someone was gay or not. Traditionally, the RCMP relied on informants as well as interrogations leading to admission. The RCMP members on the security panel, however, began to inquire into the possibility of scientific testing methods to identify sexual orientation. And these inquiries led to the infamous fruit machine. It was Professor F.R. Wake from Carleton University, who was provided funding to create some sort of psychological and or psychiatric testing mechanism or mechanisms to identify sexual orientation. Wake was a psychologist and had spent his career researching sexuality and crime. Wake's position was that there was no single test, but a battery of tests that were needed in order to detect someone's sexual preference. His fundamental position was there was something abnormal or psychologically wrong with gays and lesbians, and thus, with the right testing, this abnormality could be detected. He even believed that homosexuality could be cured through pharmaceuticals and psychological work, what today is often referred to as conversion therapy. The battery of tests that he developed included psychiatric interviews, medical examinations, lie detector tests, measuring blood volume, the Palmer sweat test, pupillary response tests, word association tests, and even a span of attention test. Wake would use a combination of these tests to try to come to some sort of scientific conclusion. So, for instance, he would use a word association test combined with the Palmer sweat test. He even wrote out a list of words that had definitive gay connotations in the eyes of the scientific community at the time. These were words like, and I'm quoting from his scientific study, bagpipe, bell, cruise, drag, dyke, flute, Fruit, mother, punk, swing, velvet, wolf, prowl, club, tea room, were all part of this list. In other tests, Wake would show photos of nude men, or men and women together, or men together in a variety of poses and activities, and examine the test subject's pupillary response. The change in the size of one's pupils according to Wake, indicated the direction of sexual interest. What is further interesting is that Wake needed both gay and straight test subjects in order to ensure that his findings were accurate. For obvious reasons of persecution, it became difficult for Wake and his team to find gay people to be willing test subjects. The RCMP who were actually the ones to nickname Wake's work the Fruit Machine, 
were supposed to provide the supposedly heterosexual subjects, yet it was very difficult to find volunteers. Why is that? It's because many RCMP members were afraid of being identified as gay as a result of the testing. The difficulty in finding willing test subjects combined with Wake's own inconclusive conclusions for very obvious reasons led to the project being abandoned by 1967 when Wake's funding was withdrawn. Regardless, during this period, thousands of people's lives were negatively affected by the security campaign directed at members of the gay community. This was a reflection of the broader prejudice and ignorance towards homosexuality within Canadian society. Some people were quietly moved to different jobs. Some people were forced to resign. Some people were outright fired. Some people became pariahs within their collegial community. Some went to jail, and sadly, some even committed suicide. After 1969, changes to the criminal code partially decriminalized homosexuality. This triggered an extremely slow and difficult process of greater acceptance of gay and lesbians in the workplace, but as many of our listeners are probably aware, this struggle continued and continues today. Nonetheless, as homosexuality was decriminalized and social acceptance increased, albeit slowly, the concept that gay men and women were a security threat to the nation slowly but surely evaporated. The fruit machine failed and was left to rot in the dustbin of ignorance and prejudice. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, And you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.